stories given in this podcast are both true and fiction, and not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Have your nightmare. Have your nightmare. Welcome to Info from the A, the place where nightmares are made. During my childhood, my family was like a drop of water in a vast river, never remaining in one location for a long time. We settled in Rhode Island when I was around eight and their way remained until I went to college in Colorado Springs. Most of my memories are rooted in Rhode Island, but there are fragments in the attic of my brain which belong to the various homes we had lived in when I was much younger. Most of these memories are unclear, pointless, chasing after another boy in the backyard of a house in North Carolina, trying to build a raft to float the creek behind the apartment we rented in Pennsylvania, and so on. But there's one set of memories which remains as clear as glass, as though they were just made yesterday. I often wonder whether these memories are simply lucid dreams produced by the long sickness I experienced that spring, but in my heart, I know they were real. We were living in a house just outside of the bustling metropolis of New Vineyard, Maine. The population was around 640. It was a large structure, especially for a family of three. There were a number of rooms that I didn't see in the five months we resided there. In some ways, it was a waste of space, but it was the only house on the market at the time, at least within an hour's commute to my father's workplace. The day after my fifth birthday, um, attended by my parents alone, I came down with a fever. The doctor said I had mono, which meant no rough play and more fever for at least another three weeks. It was horrible timing to be bedridden, and we were in the process of packing our things to move to Pennsylvania, and most of my things were already packed away in boxes, leaving my room barren. My mother brought me ginger ale and books several times a day, and these served the function of being my primary form of entertainment for the next few weeks. 
boredom always loomed just around the corner, waiting to rear its ugly head and compound my misery. I don't recall exactly when I met Mr. Widemouth. I think it was about a, a week or so after I was diagnosed with mono. My first memory of the small creature was asking him if he had a name. And he told me just to call me Mr. Widemouth because his mouth was large. In fact, everything about him was large in comparison to his body. His head, his eyes, his crooked ears, but his mouth was by far the largest. You look kind of like a Furby, I said, as he flipped through one of my books. Mr. Widemouth stopped and gave me a puzzled look. Furby? What's a Furby? He asked. I shrugged. You know, the toy, the little robot with the big ears. You can pet and feed him almost like a real pet. Oh, Mr. Wildmouth resumed his activity. You don't need one of those. They aren't the same as having a real friend. I remember Mr. Wildmouth disappeared every time my mother stepped in to check on me. I lay under your bed, he later explained. I don't want your parents to see me because I'm afraid they won't let us play anymore. We didn't do much during those first few days. Mr. Wildmouth just looked at the books, fascinated by the stories and pictures they contained. The third or fourth morning after I met him, he greeted me with a large smile on his face, ear to ear. I have a new game we can play, he said. We have to wait until after your mother comes to check on you because she can't see us play it. It's a secret game, he explained. After my mother delivered more books and soda at the usual time, Mr. Wildmouth slapped, he just slipped out from underneath the bed and tugged my hand. We have to go to the room at the end of the hallway, he said. I objected at first, as my parents had forbidden me to leave my bed without their permission. But Mr. Widemouth persisted until I gave in. The room in question had no furniture or wallpaper. Its only distinguishing feature was a window opposite of a doorway. Mr. Widemouth darted across the room and gave the window a firm push. He fingered it open and then he beckoned me to look out at the ground below. We were on the second story of the house, but it was on a hill. And from this angle, the drop was farther than two stories due to the incline. I like to play pretend up here, Mr. Wildmouth explained. I pretend that there is a big soft trampoline below this window and I jump. If you pretend hard enough, you bounce back up like a feather. I want to try. I was five year old with a fever, so only a hint of skepticism 
darted through my thoughts as I looked down and considered the possibility. It's a long drop, I said, but that's all part of the fun. It wouldn't be if it was only a short drop. If it were the way, you may as well just bounce on a real trampoline, he said. I toyed with the idea, picturing myself falling through thin air, only to bounce back to the window on something unseen by human eyes. But the realist in me prevailed. Maybe some other time, I said. I don't know if I have enough imagination. I could get hurt. Mr. Wildmouth faced, he quartered into a snarl, but only for a moment. Anger gave way to disappointment. If you say so, he said. He spent the rest of the day under my bed, quiet as a mouse. The following morning, Mr. Wildmouth arrived holding a small box. I want to teach you how to juggle, he said. Here are some things you can use to practice before I start giving you lessons. I looked into the box and it was full of knives. My parents will kill me, I shouted, horrified that Mr. Widemouth would, would, had brought these knives into my room. Objects that my parents would never allow me to touch. I'll be spanked and grounded for a year. Mr. Wildmouth frowned. It's fun to juggle with these. I want you to try it. I pushed the box away. I can't, I'll, I'll get into trouble. Knives aren't safe to just throw in the air. Mr. Widemouth's frown deepened into a skull. He took the box of knives and slid under my bed, remaining there the rest of the day. I began to wonder how often he was under me. I started having trouble sleeping after that. Mr. Widemouth often woke me up at night, saying he put a real trampoline under the window, a big one, one that I couldn't see in the dark. I always declined and tried to go back to sleep, but Mr. Widemouth persisted. Sometimes he stayed by my side until early in the morning encouraging me to jump. He wasn't so fun to play with anymore. My mother came to me one morning and told me I had her permission to walk around outside. She thought the fresh air would be good for me, especially after being confined to my room for so long. Ecstatic, I put on my sneakers and trotted out to the back porch, yearning for the feeling of sun on my face. Mr. Widemouth was waiting for me. I have something I want you to see, he said. I must have given him a weird look because he then said, it's safe, I promise. I followed him to the beginning of a deer trail which ran through the woods behind the house. And this is an important path, he explained. I've had a lot of friends about your age. When they were ready, I took them down this path to a special place. You aren't ready yet, but one day I hope to take you there, he explained. I returned to the house wondering what kind of place lay beyond the trail. 
two weeks after I met Mr. Widemouth, the last load of our things had been packed into a moving truck. I would be in the cab of the truck, sitting next to my father for a long drive to Pennsylvania. And I considered telling Mr. Widemouth that I would be leaving. But even at five years old, I was beginning to suspect that perhaps the creature's intentions were not to my benefit. Despite what he said otherwise, for this reason, I decided to keep my departure a secret. My father and I in the truck at 4 a.m. He was hoping to make it to Pennsylvania by lunchtime tomorrow with the help of the endless supply of coffee and a six-pack of energy drinks. He seemed more like a man who was about to run a marathon than one that was about to spend two days of sitting still. Early enough for you, he asked. I nodded and placed my head against the window, hoping for some sleep before the sun come up. I felt my father's hand on my shoulder. This is the last move, son, I promise. I know it's hard for you. As sick as you've been, once daddy gets promoted, we can settle down and you can make friends. I opened my eyes as we backed out of the driveway and I saw Mr. Widemouth's silhouette in my bedroom window. He stood motionless until the truck was about to turn onto the main road. He gave a pitiful little wave goodbye, steak knife in hand. I did not wave back. Years later, I returned to the vineyard. The piece of land our house stood upon was empty except for the foundation as the house had burned down a few years after my family left. Out of curiosity, I followed the deer trail that Mr. Widemouth had shown me. Part of me expected him to jump out from behind a tree and scare the living crap out of me. But I felt that Mr. Widemouth was gone, somehow tied to the house that no longer existed. The trail ended at New Vineyard Memorial Cemetery and I noticed that many or most of the tombstones actually belong to children.